Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. can test each other for COVID. No, that's actually not part of the song. But in fact, that's what our show is about today. Is is It's about the fact that increasingly people would like to test themselves for a lot of things at home. And some of those tests exist. Some of those tests could exist, but they're just not on the market or they're not approved by the FDA. There's all kinds of different layers to this whole thing. But obviously the game changer, I mean, just to back up and say broadly construed, Everybody tests at home. If you own a thermometer or an Omron blood pressure uh, cuff or one of the many increasingly less intrusive ways of testing your blood sugar, um, you know, everybody tests at home. Um, But those are really tests of symptoms, right, or the severity of symptoms or the manifestation of a problem, the degree of manifestation. We're really more talking about diagnostic tests and diagnostic tests, including pregnancy tests. And so that's what the show is going to be about today. And and it's really interesting. It's I mean, from the moment we started talking about this, the more I thought, wow, there's a way in which it's kind of a society changer, too. So for the first two segments here, uh, Dr. Michael Minna is back with us, a chief science officer of EMED, a software company that integrates home diagnostics with telemedicine, uh, and Dr. Catherine Klapperich, a professor of biomedical engineering at Boston University and scientific director of the Design Automation Manufacturing and Processes Laboratory at Boston University. So... Um, Michael Minna, you've been with us before, but in a way, back in 2020, you were sort of the Johnny Appleseed of home testing or the John the Baptist of home testing or something. You were going on a lot of shows trying to talk about the idea of a type of test for COVID that didn't exist at the time. Uh, Let's hear a little bit of how that sounds uh, before we even let Dr. Michael Minna or Dr. Klapperich talk. Uh, Let's hear uh, Michael Minna uh, on the podcast Pivot, one of the many podcasts he went on in the year 2020. We can actually take rapid paper strip tests. These are little tests that look like little pieces of paper, which is why I call them paper strip tests. Uh, but they are actually, they have, uh, they, they're really more like a pregnancy test. They're, they're a piece of paper with um, a little uh, uh, invisible line uh, on them that can catch virus if the virus um, flows over it from a nasal swab uh, that's then dipped into sort of a solution, a liquid, and then you drop the paper strip into it. It pulls the liquid across the paper and if there's any virus, the line will turn dark, very much like a pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. So one line means negative, two lines mean positive kind of thing. Uh, and these tests can be made very, very cheaply and at the tens of millions per day. If we wanted to do that, it would not be very hard uh, as a country, given the resources we have. We could get these out to people's homes and we could ask people to take these tests twice a week. And unlike a PCR test that, that ends up 
being delayed three or four days after you get the swab, these would mm -hmm. give you results practically immediately. Within five to 15 minutes, people would know when they take that test, do they have transmissible virus in them? And that's the key. These are tests that look for, I sometimes call them contagiousness indicators. They tell you, are you infectious? Right. Are you a risk to others? See, usually when we go back into the past like that, we play some harp music, you know, that kind of harp music they play when you go back into the past. Unfortunately, my harpist did not come in today because he tested positive for COVID. It's kind of ironic. So, Dr. Michael Minow, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm wondering what it's like listening to that. I mean, it, it all came true except for the paper strips. We wound up with cartridges. Um, I don't know. What's it like listening to that more than two years later? It's really, um, you know, I hadn't gone back uh, and listen to, to something like that that I had said two plus years ago, really almost three years ago now that I've been talking about this. And, you know, it, it's heartbreaking in some ways because we did go through this period of time, of course, when we had, it's hard to remember today, but we had 3,000 or more people dying every single day in this country alone from this virus. And that is just, you know, it's astounding. And uh, and to kind of to know that these pools existed at the time, that we could have acted quicker, we could have gotten these out to people's homes uh, and into people's hands much faster, been able to empower the public to participate in public health by knowing what's going on inside of their bodies. You know, and we delayed and delayed, and we were very slow as a country to get these tests authorized and used. Um, but, you know, it's a, on the other side of the coin, it is, um, you know, it's in some ways gratifying to see my research, you know, a lot of the research that I did to demonstrate the public health utility of these tests um, has really borne up in, in almost every way that, you know, that in terms of the biology and how the tests work in the virus uh, kinetics. And so it's kind of a, you know, on the one hand, it's heartbreaking. On the other hand, as a scientist and, and really scientists turned advocate for public health tools that were not being pushed fast enough in, a, in an emergency. You know, it is rewarding today, anyway, to see uh, that, that these have come to fruition. And, and the, the other thing I would mention, because you mentioned it, is they are, they are still paper strip tests. They're just paper strip tests placed into a plastic cassette just for easier handling by, by individuals. Right. So um, before we get to uh, Dr. Catherine Klapperich and add her to our conversation, I'm guessing one of the things that might be a little bit disappointing to you is the price point. Uh, obviously, you can get some for free if you're lucky from the government. You can get some for free, but not enough. Uh, if you're lucky, your insurance might cover some too. Mine doesn't for some reason. So, you know, for a long time, you know, it's like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten bucks for a test. I don't think that's what you were dreaming about. No, these tests can be made. I mean, the technology came from, you know, has been has been utilized for, for years and years and years before this pandemic for diagnosing things like malaria in Central Africa. You know, these tools are exceedingly cheap to make, you know, really pennies, uh, 30 cents. And it was, you know, I, I still think a real travesty at the price point at which they were introduced to the market at the time was $20 for, for a rapid test that cost a company, you know, 30 cents to make in reality, maybe 70 cents and all, all in. And, uh, you know, this is, that, that was a, that was a reflection of the slowness to get these tests approved, the slowness to get 
the government to really put their force behind, you know, getting the price down. Um, you know, and I, I think that the, the price point, I mean, it's a public health good. These are public health tools. They should have been available and accessible to everyone. And finally, I think that the Biden administration has done, in my view, a good job at making them accessible to everyone through the, uh, through the order through USPS site. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the average consumer going into the store is still a challenge for many, many people. And it just didn't need to be that challenging. All right. In the Department of News, you can use uh, people listening out there. If you are a Costco members, uh, you can buy, I think, five FlowFlex. I think that's what they're called, FlowFlex uh, COVID-19 tests for 25 bucks. That's the best price I've seen if you're paying out of pocket. Um, so, yeah, let's sort of take all of that and kind of back up to 3,000 feet and away from just COVID to everything else. So Dr. Catherine Klapperich, and pretty soon I'm going to start calling you Michael and Catherine because it's just too unwieldy. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, first of all, from a certain point of view, like, say, an STD point of view, uh, I mean, Michael's absolutely right sort of saying it took too long to get this stuff EUA'd uh, and, and onto the market. But it was lightning fast compared to something like STDs where essentially we're still waiting, right? Yes, we are still waiting for STD tests to be available in the strip test format in the um, in the in the in CVS or in Walgreens, um, and a lot of that has to do with how those diseases are are treated. And I often say that for curable STIs like chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, those tests should be available um, for people to do themselves, especially now that we have so much data showing that people are very good, at least women are very good at swabbing themselves um, and running tests like that. There's, there's tons of data out there on self-swabbing for STIs. Um, it's a little bit harder if you're male or you have male genitalia, um, but it is something that should be there because the, you know, the treatment is very simple, right? It's just, it's antibiotics and um, can be prescribed, you know, very quickly. Right. Um, and, and, I mean, there's so much to say about this, but I mean, another difference is between, you know, what I'm using to test myself for COVID and what we're talking about with STDs and a lot of the other tests uh, that you've studied is it's not all done at home. I mean, uh, you, what you're just describing right now would be done at home, but there's a lot of stuff that you have to just put back in the mail and sit there and wait, right? Right. So, so if you, you know, if you walk into the drugstore today, this is an exercise I do um, every once in a while because I teach a class every year on diagnostics. I go into the drugstore and I look at everything that's on the shelf and I, I usually buy about one of everything that you can buy. And then I have the students open the package and see what's inside. Uh, is this really a point of care test or is this simply a laboratory developed test with a home collection device? And most of the things there um, on the shelf, even today, are still simply tests where, you know, you open it up and all that's in there is a swab and you drop that swab into, um, you know, posted uh, envelope that's also in the box and you send it off and the laboratory does the test and sends you back the results, um, you know, via email or some other sort of, um, you know, phone call. Um, but in, you know, opening the box and having in the box something like a Binax test for COVID where you're actually running the test or like a pregnancy test where you open it up and you're actually, you know, urinating on a stick and getting the result, a true point of care test. Uh, most of what's in those boxes are not such tests. 
Right. Um, and, and I mean, just one more thing about this, uh, which is that for the FDA to kind of be slow about this or stay out of it or something, that kind of opens up all kinds of other possibilities we don't necessarily want, right? You can go to CVS and pay $99 and get some kind of STI test. Um, and, and you can go online and pay $300 and get some other kind of uh, STI or STD test. Uh, but you know, the problem is the reliability would be even more shaky because we don't appear to have the, the regulations. Well, pro- yeah, there is an argument about, you know, how laboratory developed tests, which just simply means tests that are done inside of a laboratory um, away from, you know, the drugstore where you're sending in the sample and some laboratory is doing it. You know, there, there are issues with how those tests are regulated because, um, you know, every company has their own laboratory. And so it's not like they're all going to the same, all the swabs are going to the same place for every different test, right? And people feel like there may be... Um, you know, variation in how different test sites do the tests when you're simply using, you know, a collection kit to send in a sample. Um, however, you know, many of those tests are extremely accurate. Um, you know, yes, they're expensive, like the pixel test for COVID, where you do a swab and you put it in, you send it off, you get your PCR results back. You know, they're they're both expensive and they have long turnaround times. However, uh, you know, they are reliable tests, uh, but it's not, you know, the best certainly not the best option for public health. And it, it, it's not the best option when you're in a situation where you have, you know, an extremely high incidence of disease. So, Michael, you know, as we've shifted over to this paradigm, we are to a certain degree leaving behind an older paradigm, although I'm guessing because of the mention of telemedicine in the description of your company now, last time I talked to you, you were at Harvard, I think, um, that, that maybe you begin to address this. But typically, you know, when you get your test results back in the past, you did so in the company of a clinician. And, you know, and, and the clinician said, oh, here are your lab panels, blah, 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 you know, you're, this is too high, this is too low, or you've got a real problem here, or you have a marker for Alzheimer's disease that's, you know, pretty significant, uh, or, you know, and, and there was, assuming that your clinician wasn't on some kind of horrible, you know, corporatized 10-minute clock for dealing with you, there was the opportunity to sort of process the information and maybe talk it through, and what do I need, what do I take, what do I do next? One of the problems with home tests is you do them kind of alone most of the time, and could you talk a little bit about what might be the downsides of that? Yeah, doing th- this has been uh, a, a a major concern around home testing, and that's that you know should people be left alone with finding out some information about themselves that maybe they don't necessarily fully equipped to process or deal with, or necessarily have the direct linkage to care that would normally uh, come with getting a, a laboratory test at a clinician's office. And that is, uh, we definitely don't want people to you know, be stuck in purgatory with a positive result for something like HIV and, and not know uh, what to do with it. However, there's also, there are two solutions or two kind of sides to this. On the one hand, you know, there's definitely something to be said, and I've advocated very widely for you know, Amer- Americans in general, because we are regulated through the FDA, but people, you know, I believe, should have access results. They should be, we as humans should, should be allowed to know what's happening in our body uh, on our own terms, if that's what we choose to, to want. And limiting it and forcing 
a physician, which frankly not everyone has access to, uh, to be in the middle of it can be damaging both for the individual, but also of course the things like sexually transmitted infections, uh, respiratory infections, it can be damaging for the public in terms of unnecessary spread that could have been mitigated if somebody knew on their own terms, which is usually faster, uh, that they were positive for something that's infectious. So that's one argument that, you know, just a, a human right should be to, to know what's happening inside of your body without necessarily somebody in the middle. Uh, but the other side is it is important to both enable access to things like home diagnostics, but also ensure that, you know, if you're, ensure that people are not left kind of on their own. And that's where a, a new paradigm is developing. And, and our company is now working with the National Institutes of Health to, to pilot a large national program that's looking at home test to treat, where we can link diagnostic tests in the home to treatment uh, of individuals in the home. So, you know, these things don't, it's 2023 now, and we've kind of dealt with medical care, especially in this pandemic, as though there was an absence of the internet. And the fact is telemedicine has blossomed during the pandemic. And when somebody uses a test at home, they don't need to be alone doing that. They could actually have, uh, that test can be the access that they are looking for to a clinician. Uh, that's what the NIH tested treat program is that we're now running. Um, so there's a lot of solutions. And I think we are still living in an archaic world where we kind of are, are feeling like an OTC test has to just be an over-the-counter test and with no one else involved. And I think there, that we can use technology to our advantage to ensure that for people who do want that care uh, associated with a diagnostic laboratory test, that it can be created and developed. And, and I think that's really where the FDA should be starting to become more creative in, in their thinking around you know, the, the restrictions on OTC tests because they don't want people alone when they get the results. Right. So another part of this, Catherine, and, and this is for all kinds of tests, <laughs> is what we might refer to as operator error. You know, they don't work if you mm -hmm. don't do them right. Uh, and I have to say, so I test myself twice a week for COVID-19 because I have immunosuppressed people in my life and I don't want to get them sick. Um, but, you know, it's sort of there's some hand-eye coordination that goes on there. And then it's like, did I get four of the little droplets into the indentation on the cartridge or did one of them kind of splash along the side? Should I put another one in? Is that a bad idea to put too much in? You know, if I, if I were a lab tech at Quest Diagnostics, I would do this all day and I'd probably get pretty good at it, but I wouldn't necessarily say I'm good at it now. And, and so the more complicated a test is and say the more hand-eye coordination is involved, you know, you, you run into that problem too, right? I mean, there's, I suppose, quite an incentive to make them simple to do. Sure, sure. So that, you know, the ease of use for, for testing is one of the major, um, you know, is, is one of the things that draws us toward these strip tests, right? So you'll often hear people um, talk about the relative benefits of, you know, a lateral flow strip or strip test versus, say, a PCR test, which we all got to know during the pandemic. And you know, one of the one of the things that has been said about this, the home test, the strip tests over over time, you know, for the last however many years before COVID was, oh, you have to make it super extremely simple, you know, one step, maybe two, because people simply won't do more steps than that. However, as the um, pandemic progressed and more and more of these rapid tests started showing up on the market, and you know, 
they they had they you know there were many different manufacturers they were all basically as michael said strip tests inside of some sort of cartridge or packaging that differed from test to test you know there may have been if you actually looked at it you know four steps five steps six steps if you included you know reading the test um, waiting the 15 minutes adding the buffer uh, and what was so interesting and wonderful about that um, that gives me hope is that people are willing to do those steps um, when it comes to their own health and their family's health. And, and like you said, you know, people in your life who are immunocompromised that you want to protect, if you understand basically how the test works, you know, you're willing to put in the few minutes that it takes, um, you know, to do those extra steps and get that information because it's way less work than finding your way to an urgent care and convincing someone um, you know, to give you a test and then waiting and then convincing someone to give you treatment um, should you need it. And certainly you're not gonna do that twice a week. <laughs> so um, you know, there's a lot of motiv more motivation to actually do these tests um, than was previously appreciated. Now, of course, those of us who work in the area of um, you know, pregnancy tests <laughs> know that there's a huge amount of, and there always has been a huge amount of motivation for doing pregnancy tests because people want to know if they're pregnant or not. <laughs> they, they want to know, you know, either or, what is it for various different reasons? And, you know, very early pregnancy tests, which you'll talk about in the next segment, um, were not very easy to use. And they had a number of steps, but they could be done at home and people were uh, motivated to use them. So it, that's something I feel that has come out of the pandemic that has really sort of disrupted in a sense, um, along with the telemedicine uh, coming in alongside of it, sort of disrupted how we think about what, how many steps are too many steps or how complicated is too complicated. Um, I think it has a lot more to do with motivating, educating users and you know, having access to resources as well. Right. I just know I could pee on a stick, but I don't know. I would do. I just, I've never tried it, but I just feel like it's something that, that I could do. But, you know, to that point, you know, uh, Catherine, if we think back to that clip of Michael that we started the show with, you know, he was talking about it really as an infectiousness test, right? Where you want to know whether you're infectious, whether you could be shedding, whether you could make somebody else sick. Now, at this point in the COVID story, which has gone on for two and a half years or whatever, uh, or two years, um, there's another question, which is, do I need Pax? Do I have the flu or do I need Paxlovid right now? Uh, I mean, there's a pretty powerful incentive to take that test if you're Paxlovid eligible or, or some kind of treatment eligible now that there's something you can do about it. Absolutely right. So that's one of the, you know, the prime tenets of those of us who develop diagnostics and especially uh, point of care diagnostics. You know, we're always asking ourselves two questions. The first one is, if we make this, you know, if we make this test, will the information that you get be usable by a clinician or by a public health professional to make a decision or a change in treatment for the individual? And the second question we're always asking ourselves is, okay, we know how to make point of care tests, but should we be making this point of care test? Does this particular test need to be at the point of care, right? Or should we be focusing on something else? And there are a number of different reasons why something you know, is much better test at the point of care. And what, what COVID did is really just push that out right into, you know, the, the broader population with which just, you know, the prevalence is high, the incidence is high. We need to know before we go out. And the test itself 
the lateral flow strip test is so inexpensive. There's really no excuse for not doing it um, as often as you can and have it be subsidized, hopefully, by the government. That would be nice. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with these same two wonderful guests, and we're going to talk more about home tests. In other words, just from worrying whether the wedding is on or off, a person can develop a cough. You can feed her all day with the vitamin A and the bromophins, but the medicine never gets anywhere near where the trouble is. If she's getting a kind of a name for herself and the name ain't his, a person can develop a cough. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Never know how much I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me a fever All right, we're back. We're talking about home testing with Dr. Michael Minna, the chief science officer of eMed, a software company that integrates home diagnostics and telemedicine. Dr. Catherine Klapperich is a professor of biomedical engineering at Boston University and scientific director of the Design, Automation, Manufacturing, and Processes Laboratory at Boston University. So, Michael, you know, one of the obvious downsides, uh, we're all sorry to say, about home testing for COVID-19 and probably a lot of other things eventually is the reporting problem, right? If you're doing PCR tests at, you know, diagnostic laboratories and in clinical settings and stuff like that, assume, assume, presumably you're gathering data, you're giving data to the CDC or somebody else who can use it. Whereas I'm just sitting there at home with my FlowFlex. Uh, there's really, you know, a limited chance that anybody's going to know unless I tell somebody that I'm COVID positive. So um, I have a couple of questions about that, but maybe just sort of react to that idea for starters. Yeah, that's it's uh, the th- this is an important balance between you know different forces that work in public health. One is um, enabling personal decision making in real time to help mitigate transmission, and that's kind of a, a grassroots public health effort where each participant in the public has more of an opportunity to participate in public health and perhaps cut off transmission chains, for example, in COVID-19. On the other hand, we want public health officials and folks at the CDC and public health departments to have access to the data so that they can make more top-down public health 
decisions and allocate resources appropriately. And those two are a little bit in, in conflict when it comes to rapid tests. On the one hand, rapid tests give you fast access, but not necessarily the type of robust reporting we're hoping for. And so I view this as a challenge. One of the, one of the things that I was saying you know, in 2020, I probably said in that same interview you played earlier, is that at scale, rapid tests, you could get them out to so many more people and they can be used so much more frequently as we see today. Rapid tests are much, much more frequently than a lab PCR test that even just a fraction of those tests being reported can give you the qualitative dynamics and understanding of where the pandemic is that you might need to make decisions. And we know that reporting in public health is always just a sampling of the actual burden of a disease in a population. So in some ways, it's kind of an artificial argument. And we're used to very, very solid, like near 100% reporting of very small numbers of tests versus Kind of lower rates of reporting for much larger numbers of tests and in fact with those if they if they grow to large enough numbers then the amount of reporting you get is actually even more data than you'd otherwise get and then it comes up down to epidemiologists figuring out how to interpret that new type of data right i mean in a way over the counter data right in a way you would want either heuristically or with some accuracy, maybe correlating it with wastewater numbers or stuff like that, you'd want some kind of coefficient, right? If there's 65,000 known and reported cases, what does that really mean? Does it mean there's really 650,000 cases, 130,000 cases? You kind of want a ballpark coefficient. I'm not really sure we have that right now. That's correct. And and that exists both for laboratory tests, like the fact that we report out, you know, the, the way that we report and watch the New York Times data and all this stuff, for this pandemic, we know that it's it could be an order of magnitude lower than the real cases or more. We believe in May and June from our asymptomatic screening data that actually we might have seen one to two million new cases of COVID-19 every single day in those months, and only around 100,000 were actually reported. So whether it's home testing or it's laboratory, we know laboratory has a whole different bias because you actually have to get yourself to a laboratory diagnostic to use it. So that's going to be just maybe the people who are most symptomatic or most sick, people who have more access to healthcare. So each have their own amount of bias. And I, I think that it that enables an argument to say, but you know, what are the added advantages of a home test? And I'll go back to this idea that, you know, we don't live in a vacuum where the internet doesn't exist, where where self-report self-test can't be reliably reported. Um, Again, EMED, where I'm at, it got started by working with the with the FDA and the CDC to enable the early Abbott Binance Now test to be fully reported. Everyone's a box that don't open until instructed, and there was a proctor that walked you in and created a digital point of care setting, a digital CLIA wave laboratory where the computer screen uh, became almost the, the CLIA wave lab. Right. And so there's solutions and technological solutions to some of these issues as well. So, Catherine, you know, to, to Michael's point, I mean, and we have the Internet and one of the things it's almost become kind of performative for some people. I mean, I can't tell you how many times on Facebook I <laughs> see a picture of a friend of mine and his or her hand is holding up a, a cartridge or cassette that's, you know, got the extra line. Look what happened. But I'm guessing that doesn't happen so much with STDs, right? Hey, I've got, <laughs> I've got gonorrhea. Although it Look, does. It does? Okay. It, it does happen for pregnancy tests. Yes. This is a very popular Instagram meme. 
to show off your positive pregnancy test. Um, <laughs> certain manufacturers have, have taken this on as a way to uh, to do marketing for their testing. But on a, um, yeah, on a more serious level, though, <laughs> you know, you want epidemiologically, you know, once again, you got flagged for a sexually transmitted disease in a clinical setting, that becomes part of a record. Um, right. Whereas, you know, if you have really pervasive home testing for STDs, you kind of never know. That that would be true, but you're you have to think about who is you that doesn't know, right? If an individual takes a home test for um, an STI, and they you know they they want they want treatment, they have to report that you know at least now in the United States you can't get antibiotics from a pharmacist; you can only get them from uh, a medical doctor, and so you do have to report that test in order to get treatment. There's that. Um, a second issue that comes up is simply if you are doing one of these tests and you find out that the, that you're positive, you may change your behavior regardless of whether you have consulted with a medical professional or not. Um, if your partner has taken a test and they're positive and you're negative, you may both change your behavior and that would end up in a positive event where transmission would be interrupted. Um, and so, you know, like Michael was saying before, you, you have to think about this in a, in a global fashion. And mm -hmm. in some cases, that means, you know, the clinical data, you know, may go down in some ways, but perhaps the overall good of people being able to test themselves before sexual encounters um, is is leads to fewer infections overall. Right. It's a really great point. You know, if you have 100 test results and 750 people act responsibly uh, about them. That's 750 people. If you've got a thousand uh, test results, people can be less responsible, but you'd still get 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 uh, people doing the right thing. Uh, and I hadn't really thought about it that way. So thanks to both of you for that. So Catherine, I have a dream that someday a young blonde woman with a kind of a deep voice will invent a blood test uh, <laughs> where they can, you know, I can just do it at home maybe even ultimately, but not immediately. And it'll just tell me everything. Tell me everything I need to know. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, it didn't work out so well the first time around. But like, why don't we have more? Why isn't, you know, there are now these kind of biochemical markers for certain cancers and stuff like that. I mean, you know, how far away are we from, you don't need a colonoscopy, you just need to take this test. You don't need a mammogram. You just need uh, to, to take this test. I mean, it's already kind of the case with um, with prostate cancer, right? They, they do the PSA rather than the digital exam because it's kind of all they need. So how far away are we, are we from some of this other stuff? So, you know, I think it, it, it really depends on the condition, right? The medical condition that, that you're worried about. There are plenty of things for which the technology exists, the biomarkers exist um, to make rapid tests and or blood tests that can be done that, you know, will give you early detection. Um, you know, unfortunately, the, the downfall, you know, of Theranos was simply mathematical. There, there isn't enough blood in you know the sample of blood that uh, they were taking to do you know more than one or one or two tests or maybe zero tests depending on how much of a particular uh, bug or organism is in the blood to begin with right you have to sample the right place you have to sample at the right time and you have to be able to uh, you know have a transduction mechanism or, or 
a test that that will be accurate enough to give you the information um, that you need. And the, a lot of those technologies are around. Um, but it brings me back to the the last, you know, the second question I mentioned before, which is, does it need to be point of care, right? Um, you know, does a mammogram test need to be point of care? Probably not, because you're going to go once a year, if you're lucky, to your doctor for a um, physical, and they're going to take bloods. And maybe when there's a, uh, you know, a blood test or breast cancer or pre-cancer, you would find that out on the same time scale that you would find out from a mammogram, right? So it doesn't need to be a point of care test. However, there are other things that already exist, like strep, strep tests um, for you know, strep throat. That is not available in the drugstore. And I think everyone who is a parent would agree that if it were, it would save us all a lot of time and energy if we were able to not just call the pediatrician and say, hello, my child has a uh, sore throat, but also say, my child has a sore throat and the strep test was negative and the COVID test was negative. Now, what do you want me to do? Or the strep test was positive and the COVID test was negative. Now, what do you want me to do? Um, you know, that doesn't take the power out of the hands of the clinician, but it does um, take some of the face time and travel time and other costs out of the equation. Right. There's a lot of other, I mean, we could talk all day about this. I mean, somebody just commented on social media that a Lyme disease test would be like super useful for people. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, that's a really pretty tough diagnosis as it is anyway. But uh, I also don't want to be the person who has to stick one of those things down some kid's throat, you know, the strep thing. Ah, you know, that's it's not going to be fun. Yes. <laughs> that, that's just not going to be fun. But it might be better, though, than, you know, bundling up a sick, sick kid in the car and finding a parking spot. <laughs> well, when you put it that way. So, Michael, really quickly, because we have to go and get onto pregnancy deaths, which you guys are not going to be involved in. But, you know, I mean, I just assume that a door has opened that will never close. We're just going to we are going to see more home tests for more stuff coming to market. Thanks to the wonderful makers of COVID-19. Yeah, I think that there will definitely, I mean, the, 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 the genie's out of the bottle. People, people feel empowered because when they can find out on their own, in their own home, in the comfort of, of themselves and maybe their family, what, what's going on with them. And certainly test manufacturers are seeing this. Uh, you know, the technology does exist for a lot of these things. Maybe the next drug test or the first drug test to get authorized uh, or cleared by the FDA for home use Maybe it won't require a swab that goes in the back of the throat, but it will be a, an actual molecular PCR-like test uh, that you spit into a tube and that can actually give you the same sensitivity as a doctor's office swab. Now, so, the, so the technology is there. And, uh, and I think that it's just going to keep developing. So blood tests, there's new blood collections that are pain-free. You stick a little um, leech kind of thing on your arm and it, in, in a pain-free way it pulls capillary blood out you can do a lot with that um so, so there's so many new technologies i think we should all expect and i would be completely amazed and and i, I don't think there's any way it won't happen that in five uh and definitely by 10 years from now we'll all be looking back and thinking wow we used to we used to have to go to the doctor for that we, <laughs> we couldn't just figure that out on our own why would we have ever had to go to the doctor and get a prescription for that you know, and I do think that the, the technology is emerging very quickly. Flu tests, RSV tests, Lyme tests will, will soon be available. Um, you know, we have so many. STI tests will be at home. HIV already is. So these are all going there, you know, very, very quickly. And I think just the next few years, we'll see some companies fail. We'll see some 
survive through the pandemic and, and just really keep continuing developing uh, based on sort of the stimulus that happened during during the pandemic for these new technologies. Right. I have a million more questions for both of you, Dr. Michael Minna and Dr. Catherine Claperich. However, I answer to a higher power, and that is Lily Tyson, who's standing there with her conductor's baton and going totally Lydia Tar on me. we got to take a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk uh, about pregnancy tests. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer, does everything else, too. Uh, and uh, I just mentioned her before, senior producer. Uh, Lily Tyson is the producer of this particular episode as well. All right. Here we go. Uh, we're now going to talk uh, about home pregnancy tests. And to do that with, a, is, with us is Karen Weingarten, associate professor of English at Queens College at the City University of New York and the author of the forthcoming book, Pregnancy Test. Well, it doesn't get any better than that. So, Karen Weingarten, actually, maybe before we start our conversation, let's hear uh, a little clip from an obscure TV series called, whoop, uh, no, no, not yet, not yet. Not ready? Okay. Um, okay, so we'll pause on that. So, maybe we should just begin. So, Karen, I'm so old. Oh, you got it now? Okay, let's play this clip from the obscure TV series Friends. It's negative. You know, because the whole uh, not being ready and kind of financial aspects, all that. It's gone. This is so stupid. <laughs> How can I be upset over something I never had? It's negative. No, it's positive. It's, it's not negative, it's positive. <laughs> Are you sure? Well, yeah, I lied before. <laughs> oh, my God. Now you know how you really feel about it. Oh, that's a risky little game. All right, so Karen, in a way, you know, there's sort of a, uh, a, a sort of time marker process that you can almost look at. In 1979 uh, or eight, I think there was a movie starring Billy Crystal called Rabbit Test uh, about the first pregnant man. So we've gone from Rabbit Test, which was like a very old, clunky kind of test that we can talk about, to this thing that's now ubiquitous in TV and movies, right? Somebody taking, uh, you know, the, the kind of pee on a stick test that we've been talking about in the previous segments. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's become a kind of shorthand, I think, on TV and in movies to mark a character as pregnant. And so much so that you don't really need to explain it anymore. When you look at TV shows from even as recent as the early 90s, you really see characters having to explain on TV what they're doing. I mean, the pregnancy test was a little bit more complicated then. Um, but today you can show a pregnancy test and you can even zoom in. And if there's two lines, the entire audience will know what that means without any kind of explanation. And that I think a real shift in, in how pregnancy is announced on, on television and in, and in movies as well. And as we were saying in the previous segments on Instagram and Facebook too. That's uh, right, yes. 
it's all kind of performative at this point, at least for some people, people who are kind of happy uh, about the result. So I'm so old that I actually remember the term rabbit test. And I also remember that there was a kind of slang that started in the 1950s uh, for somebody finding out that they're pregnant. People would say the rabbit died. Which is really, right. really stupid because the rabbit died either way, the way or a mouse or whatever. You know, I think either way they died and got dissected. I don't know why that meant you were pregnant. But this is, you know, a much slower, clunkier, and less independent way of verifying a pregnancy. Say a little bit more about you know, kind of what the arc of history has been on this. Yes. Yeah, so the first reliable pregnancy test, as you mentioned, was invented in 1927, which when you think about it, it's fairly recent. And that test actually involved a mouse. It took until 1931 for scientists at the University of Pennsylvania to realize that it was easier to use rabbits because they have really good veins in their ears to inject urine into them. And, and as you mentioned, the test had to be performed by killing the rabbit because, or the mouse, because you had to examine the animal's ovaries. If the animal's ovaries swelled, it meant the test was positive because these animals are mammals, right? And so they're reacting to HCG, to the hormone our bodies produce when we're pregnant. Um, and it's the same exact hormone that current pregnancy tests uh, look for. So in that sense, nothing has really changed in terms of what we're testing for when we're testing for pregnancy tests. But obviously, these early tests from the 20s and 30s, and really, they were used up until the early 1960s when laboratory tests that no longer are required using alive animals were invented. Um, so it was really only in, in 1960 uh, that the pharmaceutical company Organon uh, invented a test that no longer required killing or keeping live animals uh, in order to, to let people know that they were pregnant. And and for some reason or other, there was, um, you know, there were a lot of different kinds of home tests came onto the market in kind of a short span of time. For some reason or other, home pregnancy tests in particular caught on. And I don't know whether that had to do with federal regulators or just people really wanted this. And, and uh, what was it that made these catch on? You know, it's interesting that you say that they caught on because I would argue the opposite. I okay. think it took a really long time for them to catch on. Um, it really... The first home pregnancy test was brought onto the market in Canada in 1970, and it took eight years for the U.S. to really start marketing home pregnancy tests. And, and even then, it wasn't, it wasn't as popular as you might think, considering how, you know, most people really want to know whether they're pregnant early on. Um, it really took until the early 1990s for, for home pregnancy tests to really become a, the kind of robust market that we see today. Why pregnancy tests and as opposed to other kinds of tests? I mean, I think partially it's that people want to know, and there were these laboratory tests early on. And because it's ultimately not that hard to test for pregnancy, right? I mean, you could you use urine. Uh, it's it, the test itself became quicker and and easier to perform at home, and and even before even before home pregnancy tests really started being marketed in the U.S. and in Canada and in Europe, 
there were also feminist organizations that were hacking the laboratory tests and telling women, you could do this at home here, you know, you just need someone to be able to like purchase these laboratory tests and here are the steps. And so I think even before the tests were were marketed and available for home use, uh, women were realizing that that they could use these at home and kind of circumvent uh, their doctor and and the and the laboratory tests. Yes, and this is about to be a twenty minute conversation, and we've got less than, okay, less, than less. We yes. got less than three. I'm really no, it's my fault. But um, I mean, from a feminist point of view, yeah, you, there's a lot of reasons to you want to be able to do this on your own for a whole bunch of different reasons. And I would assume in a kind of post Dobbs Handmaid's Tale uh, world that we seem to be maybe stumbling towards, it's even more the case that a woman might have some pretty powerful reasons for not wanting there to be an accessible medical record of her pregnancy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we're going to see home pregnancy tests play an instrumental role uh, for people who don't want to be pregnant, who are going to be looking for uh, an illegal abortion, uh, who you know don't want to go to even a Planned Parenthood or a local clinic uh, that even might have provided abortions before Dobbs and now no longer can legally. Uh, and we're going to see like already in in parts of the world and that where abortion is harder to access, there are what are called multi-level pregnancy tests that can tell you actually how much hormone your body is producing. And so it could tell you whether the medical abortion you took, the abortion you had with pills that you might have gotten through the mail worked. And so then you don't even need to go up for follow-up care after your medical abortion. So I think pregnancy tests are going, yes, absolutely. They're going to be so important and increasingly so. Um, in 30 seconds, um, how are we doing on price point uh, for home pregnancy tests right now? I would say that if you go to your drugstore, they're still very expensive, right? Uh, there's often like a cheap generic brand, but when you go, when you look on the internet, you can get really, really cheap, just like the inside of the pregnancy test, just that strip, you can get bundles of those. And that and the test ends up being less than a dollar for each test as a result, because you're not getting that plastic coating. The same thing we you were talking about earlier with COVID tests, which is, I think, what really drives up the price of these tests. Yeah. So we have to stop there. A lot more to say about this. Karen Weingarten, Associate Professor of English at Queens College of the City of New York uh, and oh, City University of, of New York and the author of the forthcoming book, Pregnancy Test. Order it now at your independent bookseller. Uh, and thanks for listening today. I'm a woman.